You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 today. If you have your Bibles, feel free to turn there. We're going to be flipping to a few different books as well. Ernest Lawyer Thayer wrote a poem in 1888 that has become a part of Americana. It describes a a hometown baseball team in the fictional small city of Mudville, and it elevates its star player, a man named Casey, a poem called Casey at Bat. Mudville is a fictional city, and there's a fictional baseball game that's occurring, and the local team, Mudville, is down two runs in the bottom of the ninth inning, and all of the hopes of the town are pinned on their star player, Casey, coming to the plate. Casey, however, is due up fifth in that inning, which means that two other people have to get on base for the star to get up to bat. And that happens. Two of the weakest players on the team get hits, and they get on base, and to great fanfare, the mighty Casey steps up to the plate. He is full and brimming with confidence, and his abilities, and in his pride, he decides to take the first two strikes. And Thayer sets up this dramatic moment, and he pins it like this. Maybe you remember these words from elementary days. Oh, somewhere in this favorite land, the sun is still shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light. And somewhere men are laughing, And somewhere children shout, but there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. All the hopes of Mudville were pinned on Casey, who in his overconfidence and pride struck out. And it says in that very last slide that there was no joy to be found in Mudville on that night because of it. Is it true, is it true that when things don't go our way, when people fail us, when we fail ourselves, when everything in our life points to the same conclusion that we have struck out, is it true that there is no joy to be found? Logically, we would say yes. Logically, we would say yes, that joy cannot be found in suffering and waiting and deference and humility. The world has us believing that joy is found in strength and victory and wisdom and in ourselves. But as Jesus and the scripture tend to do, they flip the worldly wisdom upside down. They flip the wisdom of this earthly kingdom on its head. Christ in its word compels to us that there is joy to be found in weird and surprising places. And so today is our last week of Advent, and we are going to look and reflect on the attribute and the posture of joy. Advent is this season where we reflect back on the ancient anticipation of Christ coming into the world 
that it might inform us and increase our anticipation and joy for Christ to return. And today, what we will find is joy in three surprising places. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today, and we, uh, we admit, Lord, that we have some notions of what it means to be joyful. And we have segments in our life that we think this is where joy lies. But Lord, your word teaches an all-comprehensive joy that is outside of us and time. And so, Lord, will you use your word to humble us, to convict us, to guide us, to bring gladness into our hearts? We ask this through the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So we're going to head back into the book of 1 Corinthians, a book that we were in last week, where we saw Paul dealing with a church in chaos. And he speaks great words of wisdom, and we will find in those words a surprising joy. And so we're in chapter 3, and we'll look at verse 18, and we'll head all the way into the fourth chapter through verse 2. The Apostle Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no man, no one boast in men. For all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, but with me It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. This is the church in Corinth facing the kind of chaos that still occurs today. There are people in that church and some who have recently come into that church who are vying and jockeying to prove their own self-importance. Self-importance is this sort of idea of an inflated sense of one's value and significance, and it creates major issues. It creates major issues because when we're striving for our own importance, our own causes, our own rightness, it will always come by making other people lesser and then compelling the world around us of that truth. And so self-importance creates a war of egos, of people battling against each other, and the only true motivation is themselves. And so in this day, you have a prideful people who are dividing and fighting and arguing over issues of doctrine and faith and life. They have made fan clubs out of the early church leaders. Some follow follow Paul and some follow Apollos and some follow Cephas, which is Paul's another name that Paul gives to the disciple Peter. And so they've created all of these fan clubs and all of this division. And we would be amiss today if we don't believe that that still happens today. 
We are these people. Like, we are prone to their same proclivities. We are prone to their same postures, myself included. We are a people that love to fancy our own self-importance, to have our own fan clubs of people that we like and think are right, and we belittle those who disagree with us. We make them into things so we don't have to love them or listen to them. And that is true in the world of politics. It is true in our family. The amount of estrangement in families today in this period is epidemic levels. People who are just estranged for different reasons and nobody talks to each other anymore. And it certainly is true of the church. There are people who come to church for years, who sit in services day, Sunday after Sunday, and they never listen to a word or a lyric. They are convinced that they cannot learn anything from anyone. They, whether they know it or not, see themselves as the most important person in the room. And Paul gives us and them a very stark warning. He says, let no one deceive you. If you have a Bible and you underline, underline the word no one, there is absolutely no one, zero people that should ever convince you of your wisdom. Paul says, if you are wise in this age, become a fool. Worldly wisdom is foolish. It's folly. It is the fool in Christ that is wise. And what is it that makes worldly wisdom folly? What does it make it foolish? Well, let's pretend here for a moment. Let's pretend that you have a, a wonderful grandfather who has made a name for himself in the community. He's a great businessman who employs lots of people in your community, and he is fair and good to those employees. He looks out after them. His reputation is flawless. He's done well for himself. But one day, him and his wife decide to take a very long vacation, months on end, overseas. And they ask your cousin to come and house it and manage the property. They give him a little money for himself to manage things and, in emergencies, a credit card just in case. Well, two weeks after, you begin to hear rumblings of your cousin using this credit card to buy very lavish gifts for himself. He's indulging himself with your grandfather's money. And then you start hearing that he is sort of getting into the workflow, that he's started to come into your grandfather's business and stir things up. People are upset. He's firing people, and now he's making decisions of strategy. And then at your grandfather's house, who you love, he's hosting social events and parties with elites, and he begins to fancy himself as one with great importance and status. Meanwhile, you're back at home with your cup of noodles watching Netflix. And what are you saying about your cousin? Well, at minimum, we won't go into all the words and vocabulary that you might say about him or her, but at minimum, you think they're a fool. Why are they a fool? They're a fool because they're using resources that aren't theirs. They're making decisions that aren't theirs to be made. They're using a reputation that isn't their own. And they're misusing a status that they haven't earned. 
They, in their own desire for self-importance, have used commodities that really aren't theirs to achieve what they could never earn. And that is what Paul is saying is the folly of worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom centers on a life that revolves around you. And it forgets that everything that we have and everything that we are was meant to serve someone and something else. Paul says, all are yours. All are yours. And you are Christ. And Christ is God. Everything that was given to you was meant for goodness and joy and enjoyment and flourishing. But all of it belongs to Christ. Not just because he's worthy, but in that all that we are and all that we have and know, they have come from him. In Acts 2, Luke, the historian, writes that God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. But listen to this. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so there is a wisdom of scripture that enlightens us to a surprising place of joy. That there is foolishness. There is foolishness in our joy. How can that be? How can we be a joyful fool? Well, well, two things. Two things. Think about the results and reactions of a life that centers around us. If life is all about us, there are no guarantees. There are no assurances in this life. All of life is just a mere stringing together of cause and effects, which means that we're always working and operating and living from a place of insecurity. You journey through life with an innate belief that everything is a potential threat to yourself. Or you feel completely inadequate because you have judged everyone around you to be smarter and prettier and better than yourself. Because if all of life centers around you, then it is easy to find people in your own estimation that are better than you are. Worldly wisdom comes from insecurity. Secondly, a life that centers around you means that the very purpose of our life is about self-justification, that we are trying to prove to the world our worth, our value, our purpose. We're trying to prove ourselves to everyone around us. All of life becomes a journey of comparisons where we try to one-up the people in our life to elevate our own standing and worth. And then when it crushes us, which it does, self-justification crushes us, in our desperation, we revert to insults and belittling. Because if we can't be better than someone in our accomplishments and our status, we certainly can be better than them in our beliefs and our thoughts. Worldly wisdom centers around self-justification. And so let me tell you why foolishness in Christ is joy. It's joy. It's joy because I no longer operate from a position of insecurity but from one of deep and profound security. That the God of the universe knows me, he made me, he loves me, he forgave me, he gives grace to me. Everything that I am and everything that I have is his. 
and that is for my joy and his glory. I approach the world with an innate position of security because the world cannot take from me what truly matters. And I can walk into any situation, no matter what, believing that God is with me. And that changes everything in our lives. But joy also means that we don't have to self-justify. Do you notice the words of Paul here? He says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not therefore acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Now, I don't want to, don't really have time to go into all the ways that this passage is misused. Uh, only in, in this, I will say, if we have a penchant to compel to others that only God can judge me, meaning that you can do whatever you want and you don't want to hear anything from anybody else, then I will say to you this, it is a far better situation for you to be judged by human standards than it will be for you to be judged by a holy God in eternity. God must crush us. He must break us to see our need for him. And so what Paul is saying here is, I don't have to be justified by you. I don't, I don't need your approval. Why doesn't he need his, their approval? Because he already has it. I can't think of anything that I'm not acquitted for. Is Paul being arrogant now? No, he's being honest. What he means is that all of his broken stuff, all of his sin, everything about him was judged completely and acquitted in Christ on the cross. All of his sin, all of his folly was nailed to the cross. And Paul says, I'm going to leave it there. I'm going to leave it there. I am justified. I don't need to self-justify because I'm already justified by his wounds. He writes to that church, the same church in Corinth in the first chapter, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is saying through the cross, everything that I need to find value and worth and status and belonging and forgiveness and acceptance is found because God has me. And Christ has purchased me. His blood has brought to me righteousness. And all I simply need to do is be faithful to him. Isn't that just a freeing phrase that I don't have to worry about justifying myself to all of you or to anyone else? That I simply can just be faithful to the one who has justified me on the cross. All we want to do in this world is to be found faithful in him. Because the only person we need to be justified by is God himself, and we have that in Christ. And that is incredibly joyful to know. Nathan Partain wrote a song called, I Am One of Those. And its lyrics say this. It says, I am one of those who is hard to love and ugly. Self-righteous, critical religion was my stain. So I ran to Christ to wash and be discovered. Jesus called me out and he covered up my shame. Though the world may number me among the foolish who think Jesus Christ is all I need to know. Jesus suffered and paid blood to buy the lowest of the lows. Hallelujah. Amen. That's me. Yes, I am one of those. Paul says, you're a fool to be wise in the world, but you're wise to be a fool in Christ. That, that all I have and all I need in this world is in him. And that is joy. 
I can be foolish in Christ for my joy. Think about where your true moments of joy in this life come from. They come from the moments when you most assuredly forget yourself. You forget your importance. When you stand at the edge of the great Grand Canyon, you're not thinking about yourself. You're overcome by joy because you self-forget. You refuse to make yourself a big deal in light of it. You can sit around your kids and just watch them play and you find joy in that you forget yourself. You don't make much of yourself. Foolishness in Christ is joy. But more than foolishness, there is a lowliness in our joy. There is a lowliness in our joy. Paul writes to another church in Philippi in chapter four of his book, his letter to the Philippians. In verse 12, he writes, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul is saying that there is a delight and a wonder in being brought low to both know plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Because in my lowliness and in my elevation, I become more aware of God's love and goodness and truth in my life. Plainly said, if I encounter God at rock bottom, and I come to know him and I sense his grace in my lowest of lows, it only magnifies him in my times of abundance. God's goodness is indescribable. We need to come to the end of ourselves to know that strength and to know his cause because we can't do all things. Christ can do all things for us. And so as this week progressed, I was reading some quotes, and I read this quote by a guy named Billy Sunday. And maybe you've heard of him. He was a famous evangelist at the turn of the 20th century. I don't think anybody of you was alive at the time to really recognize him. But in the 20th century, right before World War I, Billy Sunday was a big deal. And he, he's quoted to say this, if you have no joy, there is is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. If you have no joy, there is a leak in your Christianity somewhere. And I read that over and over again. I thought, what does this mean? What is he saying? And I took it to our group that meets weekly where we talk about what we're gonna say from this platform. And we just thought about this. And then collectively we came together and we said this. Well, who in here can say that we don't have a leak in our Christianity? Who in here can say that at times we don't have some substantial leaks in our Christianity? That on this side of eternity, we are bound to get a lot of things right, but we will always have blind spots. The Apostle Paul said last week in the book of Corinthians that now we see in part, but then one day in eternity, we'll see in full. And so I get the sentiment that right belief, right faith promotes joy, that it's impossible not to have joy if we have right belief. But the problem is this, is even though the perfection of Christ is the desire of our hearts, it is not within our ability in this broken flesh and in this broken world, which means whether we want to believe this or not about ourselves, we will always have a leak somewhere in our Christianity, whether that's a faulty belief about ourselves, 
a faulty belief about others or about God himself. It's a certainty, which means this, that there's really only two ways that you can read this quote. You can either read it and be prideful in the fact that I have joy because it means that I'm believing the right things and we grow in our self-righteousness or it throws us into shame because I have no joy. I must be doing something wrong and God is punishing me. But the problem with any of those is that it doesn't communicate the gospel and it doesn't share a Christ-centered life. It misses the whole point of the gospel that God brings people low to know himself deeper and fuller, to see how splendid and glorious he is. We must see our need to know how full he is. We must know the bad news for the good news to be good. And so if I can be ultra vulnerable with you today, joy is a significant burden in my life. Sustained joy is hard for me to come by, particularly in light of this season, in light of my profession, of my history, and in the state of the world. Like when we get to December and it's dark for 23 hours a day, <laughs> do you not feel that? My disposition is affected greatly. And all of that gets sewn into a heart that knows the scars of depression and worth and into a world that is by far more opinionated, cranky, grumpy, and critical than it has ever been. And I grieve it. And so I don't say that to complain. And I don't say that that you have pity on me. I just think it's important that you know that I struggle. That there are leaks in my faith because pretending isn't helpful. And you don't want a pastor who pretends. I don't have it all together, nor do I always get it right. But more than that, I want you to know this, that my joy is increased in embracing it rather than denying it. My leaks actually grow my joy. And so far be it for me to be critical of something that was said so long ago by somebody like Billy Sunday, who's revered far more than I ever will be. The dude's got a Wikipedia page, all right? He's legit. But sometimes, as Christians, we simplify truths into cliches that are fun to say, but are unhelpful. With good intention, we build truths that don't promote joy, that don't cause us and spur us towards greater love with God and one another. And so if I could rephrase Billy Sunday's saying, it would be more like this, that the leaks in our Christianity become the avenues of our joy. Because when we're able to see through the Holy Spirit and confront the leaks in our faith, the areas of wrong belief about ourselves and others and God's. When we challenge our faith in the areas that it's lacking and we seek God and his truth, we, we meet with and then we are surprised again by a God who has and will always be just and good. And that is of infinite joy. 
that in our humility, we are surprised again by the glory of God. Now, I want you to think about it this way. If you have a home, the last thing that you want to do is to call a plumber. The last thing you want to do is call, but if you have a leak in your home and you're unable to fix it, or if you're like me and you try to fix it and you make it worse, right? You are forced to call a plumber. And by calling that plumber, what you're essentially saying is, I have a problem that I can see, but I cannot fix it, and I need your help. And if that plumber is good, they will respond quickly. They'll come to your home, and you may be surprised by their professionalism, how good they fix it, and you express gratitude to them as they leave. That leak was a threat to your home. It was a threat to your property. And they prevented any more damage from occurring. And that brings you relief and rest. And at the end of it, you compensate them justly for their skill and their time. You would have never met that plumber. You would never have seen their skill. Nor would you have ever sought any help outside of yourself if you didn't have a leak. And so here is why I say the leaks in our faith are avenues of our joy. Our leaks in the area of faith and belief and life, as we become aware of them, create divine appointments with God himself, the author and the perfecter of our faith and truth and joy. Those leaks humble us in a way that they force us to admit the truth of ourselves, that we don't know at all, and that we can't fix it, and that, God, we need your help. Those divine moments become places. Those leak become spaces where we are sparked to joy again. Because we find ourselves yet again surprised by God. And we're stirred by his grace and his love and his truth and his goodness. And just like the plumber who got his just compensation, God desires his. And yet it is not found in your checkbook or in your credit card but it is paid with our very lives and it cost us everything to which we will find the more willfully we give ourselves to the Lord, the more complete our joy becomes. Surrender and weakness become the very power in which we flourish in the kingdom of God. God brings us low. He humbles us that we come to the end of ourselves to realize that our relationship with God begins at the place that I end. And there is an all-encompassing joy in knowing that even at my lowest, that he is near. And it's quite better, actually, to lean on his strength than mine. Those leaks become avenues of joy. And the last way that joy surprises us is in this, is that there is a baby in our joy. There is a baby in our joy. Paul writes in Philippians 2. Have this mind amongst yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And on that very night in Bethlehem, when God descended quietly into the world, the whole 
earth felt its wake. And Luke records it in his gospel in chapter two this way. He says, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. There is joy to be found in that today. And there is joy to be found in that every day, that Christ has come, that he is here. And in his quiet and humble birth, we find joy in this, that the God of the universe left his throne, that he gave up prestige and majesty to not merely sit as a judge over all the world on his heavenly throne, but he came to be a God with us, a God near us. And his birth in the manger reveals to us that he didn't come through the power and the might of the systems of the world, but through humility and peace, he brought joy to us. God's incarnation is the hope of the world. He has come to redeem his people. He has come to redeem us. And on the cross, the baby grew. Well, not on the cross. He grew to go to the cross to accomplish all of those purposes for us. That in him, there is nothing in this life, there is nothing in our death that could ever separate us from the love of God. Is not joy simply the present tense word for hope? An illogical hope that comes from God himself, that God came for me, that he knows me, and that he has me, that he's rescued me, and he's forgiven me. That is good news of great joy. And so we are reminded today that there is a foolishness to our joy. And we're reminded today that there's a lowliness in our joy. And we celebrate this week that there is a baby in our joy. Because he's the joy of the world. May the earth receive their king. And let every heart prepare his room in heaven and nature sing. Let us sing. Let us reflect. Let us rejoice that the Lord has come. It is good news of great joy for all of the world.